0: Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, and as we've been doing, let's read into this from the end of chapter 5, starting in verse 20. Romans 5, verse 20, this is the word of the Lord, give us ears to hear, O Lord. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How, can, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death Father we ask this morning that you would bless your your holy word bless it to our hearing our understanding and father mostly that you would change us to be like your blessed son that we would be living testimonies of your grace your superabounding grace father forgive us our sins cleanse us make us fit for your service for you alone are worthy of all praise honor and glory and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Please be seated. Mm -hmm. Mm. Those of you who have been with us the last few weeks um, in this study in Romans know that we have um, turned a page, so to speak, when we came to chapter six And really, Paul is taking a pause from his discussion of justification by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Uh, and he is dealing with a question that he anticipates one of his Jewish opponents in particular might ask. And that question is, Paul, since you say that the law um, seems to have been set aside and that it's really grace that abounds and that matters in in the question of our salvation, then why wouldn't somebody just say, let us live in sin as much as we want, because we have more than enough grace to compensate for our sin? And in fact, maybe that would even put the glory of God on display, as we sin with impunity so that God can just continually cover over our sin. And Paul is asking this question, is that a right understanding and a right use of grace? And his answer is, may it never be. In fact, certainly not is an understatement in my translation. It is a statement of abhorrence, of horror, that a person would even ask a question like that to so misrepresent grace as to say it's fuel for sin. And so, last week, we looked at Paul's explanation, in fact, his first big illustration of what it means that we died with Christ, that we died to sin, rather, in verse 2, because his answer is, certainly not. We shall not continue to live in sin. Don't you know, or how, excuse me, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's his general answer to the question. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? And so we we spent time looking at what does it mean that we have died to sin? And in the context, what we learned is that we have died to the reign, to the rule, the authority, the dominion of sin, that sin held over us, and that we really see Paul bringing out in verse 21 of chapter 5, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, his first answer to the question is absolutely not. We've died to the reign of sin. And then his first big illustration of what it means that we died is in verse 3. Do you not know? Are you ignorant of this fact? That as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And so we we looked at this question of baptism and what Paul means that we have been baptized into Christ. Is he talking about a water baptism, the ritual, the ceremony of water baptism? And we saw um, last week that, no, he's not talking about a water baptism. In fact, the word baptism means a full and permanent immersion into Christ such that we become one with him. It's a picture of our union, and that is... Um, something that is a permanent state of affairs. And so he's talking about a, a spiritual baptism, which the Holy Spirit of God himself does for us by joining us to the body of Christ. It's by one spirit that we're joined to the one body with the Lord Jesus Christ himself being our new head. Adam is no longer our federal head, as he was and is for all who are naturally born in this world. We've been transferred To a new kingdom and to a new body where Jesus Christ now rules and reigns as our head. And so uh, we, we looked at three effects of what it means to be baptized or immersed into Christ. And we saw that really the experience of Christ is the experience of every true believer in Christ. And it's this, when he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. And when he rose, we rose with him from the dead. And the way that Paul defines that in verse 4 is that we should walk in what he calls newness of life. A new kind of life, a new realm in fact. A new kingdom that we belong to where our pattern of life, our manner, some versions say our conversation. The idea is our lifestyle, what we habitually practice now is new, it's altogether different from that former manner of life. But the key point for the antinomian, the one who would say, let's live lawlessly that grace may abound, is that this life that we now have in Christ first required a death. It first required a death. And so, we're gonna spend some time this morning fleshing that concept out a little bit more. And there's really three points I'd like to give you today, and the outline will see how far we get. Um, three points. The first is the promise of freedom. And when I say freedom, I'm talking about freedom from sin because that is the context that we're talking about today. The promise of freedom. Secondly, the purpose of freedom. And thirdly, the proclamation of freedom. Pur- promise, purpose, and proclamation. So let's look again at verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the first thing that you'll notice is Paul seems to be restating what he said in verse 4. His emphasis in verse 4 is on this newness of life that results from our union, our baptism, our immersion into Christ. And he says, if we have been united together, in verse 5, in a death like his, if we've been crucified with him, and he's going to say that in verse 6 specifically, then certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So Paul wants to give another illustration now of this concept, this doctrine of union with Christ, and he wants to strengthen his argument to show us our union with Christ is real and it's guaranteed. So first, the promise of freedom. When he says in verse five, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that word united in the Greek is a unique word. It's only used one time in the scripture and it's used right here in Romans 6, 5. And it's translated to plant together, to plant together. In fact, I think the King James is uh, possibly the only version that I saw that renders it that way. Others render it as united together. Um, but the word is a compound word, as often Greek's word, Greek words are. The two words are sim, sym, S Y M, which means together, together with, and phio, which is a, a root, F. uh, if you will, it's a root that means to spring up, to spring up. And so you put these words together and it seems to say if we have sprung up together in the likeness of his death, and it doesn't quite sound right in that context, um, really because it's a unique word, the understanding is planted together because that which is first planted together then springs up together. So that's where the root Theo comes in. But the, the context here, again, is this. We have been united in the likeness of his death. What does that indicate? That's visually indicating a downward motion. We've gone into the ground with Christ. We've been buried with him. So there's where the planting idea comes in. Like seed, we have gone into the ground with Christ, been buried and covered over, and that seed then gives way to new life. Think about Jesus in John chapter 12 when he says this in verse 24. This is the principle. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Much grain. So here we have the picture of a single grain of wheat. That grain goes into the ground. It's covered over and dies, so to speak. And what happens, what results from that is new growth. A new stock of wheat, in fact, which or whose head has many uh, grains of wheat, doesn't it? So the one gives way to the many. And the means by which that occurs is death. Death. So now we think about this doctrine that we've been united with Christ. We are in him. This operation of the Holy Spirit has placed us, immersed us into him. Then when Christ went into the ground and was buried... When he was risen from the dead, we were the result. We were the fruit. We were the grain, the multiplicity of grain that came from the one grain that went into the ground and died. So this imagery conveys more than anything else, this planting conveys an image of union. Or of joint origin with Jesus Christ. Our Corporate reading this morning in Psalm 92, verse 13. The psalmist says, Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. What is this house of the Lord where those who are planted there will flourish? Or maybe the better question is, who is the house of the Lord? Who is the true temple of God? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, How can this be? This temple was in building for 46 years, and this man says he's going to raise it in three days, but the Scripture says that he spoke of the temple of his body, of his body. Jesus is the true temple, and so this this picture really in Psalm 92, you could think of as a wonderful picture of union with Christ. Those who have been planted into Christ, in the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, shall flourish in the courts of God. They will Bring forth fruit, budding, life, evidence of life. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah prophesying of the Messiah says, It is we, the poor in spirit, who have been set free by the Messiah, who are called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So who is it who plants these trees in the house of the Lord in Christ himself? It's the Lord himself. The Lord plants the trees, the righteous trees, into his own courtyard where they are in his presence, where they are in union with him and bearing much fruit. In Matthew 15, Jesus said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. So there are plantings that have not been planted by the Lord. Those plants will be uprooted. Those are the tares that the enemy has sown in with the wheat, the genuine article, those who are truly born again. But it's only the wheat, those who have been planted by the Lord or the righteous trees that God has planted that will endure. They will never be uprooted. So we were planted together with him, with Christ, by God himself. By God himself. So you could think of this, again, we're, we're talking about this imagery of union with Christ and planting together with him. But you could also think of this imagery by, in terms of grafting. Grafting. In grafting, the branch is grafted into the vine and becomes one. A shoot, a clipping is placed in union with a larger established tree or a trunk or a vine and held there so that the two would fuse and become one and that life sap of the vine courses now through the sapling, through the shoot and gives it life. And of course that's exactly what Jesus was talking about in the upper room discourse in John 15 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. Nothing. Those who abide in Christ, who are planted in him, who are in union with him, bear much fruit. It's another picture of our union with Christ. And it's all captured in this idea of being planted or being united together in the likeness of his death. Now, Paul is saying, if that's the case, if you have, in fact, been planted, grafted, united together with Jesus Christ in the likeness of his death, death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, is he talking about a future bodily resurrection here? Look back at verse 4. The comparison is this. We were buried with Christ through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also, you would expect him to say, should be raised by the glory of the Father, but the way he phrases it is this, should walk in newness of life. That is, in fact, the definition of what it means to be raised spiritually to new life. This is our resurrection now, a spiritual awakening where we are sensible of the things of God and we love the things of God. Um, He's talking about spiritual resurrection now. Yes, there is an application for down the road when we will be glorified and raised bodily from the dead, just following in Christ's example. But he was raised from the dead that we might walk in newness of life now. That's the context of verse 4. And so in verse 5, what's the only thing that he adds to this comparison? Is it not this word, certainly? Certainly certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, he's emphasizing the certainty of our being raised with Christ, of walking in newness of life. In other words, our union or our being united to Christ does not just make it possible that we would walk in newness of life. It actually guarantees it. This is the promise of freedom, brothers and sisters. This is the promise of freedom, a freedom from sin that now enables us to walk in newness of life because it's God who is at work in us both to do and to will of what? His good pleasure. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. It's the life of God in the soul of a man or a woman or a child. This promise of freedom we read about in The promise of the new covenant given in Ezekiel chapter 36, and we quote this often because it is so wonderful. It is an anchor point for us as we understand what it means to be alive spiritually in Christ, united to him. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. I will cause you to walk. I will, uh, you will keep my judgments and do them. That's not so much a command as it is a promise, right? This is the promise of newness of life that always results from genuine union with Jesus Christ. And you can see how Paul would be concerned to insert that truth of walking in newness of life here in Romans 6 when he's addressing these antinomians who say, I can just continue in sin that grace may abound. Paul is telling the antinomian and all who think this way, if you think that you can continue in sin as a habitual pattern of life, just like you did before knowing Christ, if you think that you can live that kind of life after being justified by faith in Christ, the truth is you're not in union with him at all. It's a hard truth. But it is true. You may call yourself a Christian in name, but if there has not been a marked transformation of life from an old pattern of serving self and sin to a new pattern of serving the Lord and righteousness and holiness, then, my friend, you are deceiving yourself to call yourself a Christian. It's an oxymoron. Newness of life is fundamentally this truth that we have died to sin. That we have died to sin. And we are now walking in newness of life. And what is implied in this idea of newness of life? Is it not the idea of repentance? Of actively and continuously turning away from my old pattern of life, my old self, my old desires and ambitions and wants. And, and my sins that are all a part of that. And turning to Christ to serve him, to gaze at him, to love him and obey him. That is what is exactly implied with this newness of life. It is a a lifestyle not just of repenting once of my sins and trusting in Christ, but of continuous repentance and trusting in Christ. That is what marks the believer in truth. So there must be this change of life in each of us, in our hearts, that results in a new pattern of holy living enabled by the Holy Spirit whom God puts into us along with these new hearts that he's given us, hearts of affection for Christ. And that is what makes us Christians. So first is the promise of freedom. If we've been planted truly, if we've been grafted, if we've been united and immersed into Christ, then... We also shall, shall excuse me. We also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We will walk in newness of life. Secondly, the purpose of freedom. The purpose of freedom. Excuse me. Verse six. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Paul saying, first of all, here's what you must understand, brother and sister in Christ. Our old man was crucified with him. So the first question that should come to your mind is, what does this old man term mean? What is our old man? And the word that he uses for old here is the Greek word paleos, which is not old in chronology, like in age, But it's old in usage. In other words, worn out, useless, only fit for being thrown into the dump heap. That's the kind of word he uses with this phrase, our old man. We who are now worn out, useless, expired, not good for anything but being thrown out. It's the word, in fact, that Jesus uses in Matthew 9 16 and 17 when he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment paleos garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old, paleos, wineskins, worn out, uh, useless for holding new wine. So this old man, this worn out self, you could say, is the person I used to be, the person you used to be. It is really our earthly human nature apart from divine influence. It's the natural man. It's the old nature that was given to sin, to loving sin, and to being opposed to God, a rebel of God. That's all what's encompassed by this phrase or term, our old man. So you could say, in short, that our old man is the old sin nature that we inherited from Adam. And it's that sin nature that... Paul had been driving home for us in Romans 5, verse 12, all the way through to the end of verse 21, that used to reign over us, used to hold us in a state of bondage, so that all we could do was sin. All of that is the idea of the old man. It's that old nature. And Paul is going to contrast this old man with what he calls the new man. The new man. And he does that in a couple of places. He does it in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians 4 just to look at this in a little more detail. Let's pick up at verse 17. Ephesians 4 17. And holiness. So when you read this passage, you get the distinct sense that Paul is giving some instruction up front, verses 17 through 21, and then it seems that he gives uh, commands that you put off the old man, and in 24, that you put on the new man. In fact, um, I think almost every uh, translation that I looked at um, has that sense to it. It has a sense that these are commands. But what really surprised me this week as I was preparing for this message is um, if you look at the Greek, there's a different sense for what is being said here. And I have to give credit to Dr. John MacArthur because he was the one who tipped me off to this and, and it led to a study of the Greek here that um, I really found surprising but in a wonderful way and I wanted to share it with each of you. He says um, in the LSB, so this is the kind of newer version of the New American Standard. The LSB comes really close. It says in verse 22, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. To lay aside. It's a little bit ambiguous. Is, Is that a command or is that more a statement of fact? Well, the truth is that if you look at Um, the Greek on this, these are not commands at all that are being given in verses 22, 23, and 24. They're what's called indicatives. They're statements of fact, statements of what is already true, not encouragements to do something. You see the difference? So, what he's saying in verse 22 is this, that you have put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which Actually, it says, which is corrupted according to the deceitful lusts. And not be renewed in the spirit of your mind, but, and you are renewed in the spirit of your mind. And verse 24 is, and that you have put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You see how differently that reads when you read it as indicatives and not imperatives? As statements of fact and not direct commands? What is he doing here? Well, he's contrasting again the old man which is the old nature inherited from Adam, the sin nature that used to dominate you and me. And he's contrasting that with what he calls the new man. Kenos in Greek is the same root word he uses in Romans 6.4 for newness of life. It's a new kind of person, altogether different. In fact, he defines it as one who is created or fashioned or formed in the likeness of God in righteousness and true holiness. This is the new man. The old man was characterized by the pursuit of sin and corruption as the pattern of its life. The new man is characterized by the pursuit of righteousness and holiness as the pattern of his life. He's saying that is the person you have put on by virtue of your union with Christ. That is the kind of person you now are by virtue of the fact that you are united to Christ. Because Christ himself has put off your old man, your old nature, and he's put on a new nature, a new man for all of us. And so the sense, really, of Ephesians 4 here in 17 through 24 is this. Don't live like the rest of the Gentiles live any longer. You used to live that way. Don't do that anymore. Their minds and their hearts are still dark, blind, ignorant of spiritual things because they are alienated, alienated from the life of God. They have zero spiritual sensitivity. That's why they give themselves over to sensuality wholeheartedly. They're like beasts without understanding. But you, Christian, brother and sister in Christ, don't live like that anymore. Why? Why? If you have heard Christ and have been taught by him. And what is this truth that is in Jesus? It's the statement of these facts. That you have put off the old man. That you are renewed in the spirit of your mind. We have the mind of Christ present tense now, don't we? And that you have put off, excuse me, have put on the new man which is created in righteousness and true holiness. Here's the pattern. Since this is true of you, here's the doctrine. And that's really what Paul is saying in verses 22 through 24. This is what Christ has done for you. And in the light of that, live. So here's the imperatives that now come starting in verse 25 all the way to the end of the chapter. These are the commands. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt communication or word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the necessary edification, building up so that it may impart grace to the hearers. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, And evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. There's the description of the new man. And these are commands that are given only on the heels of this is what Christ has done for you in your union with him. That doesn't make any sense if you say it's up to you to put off the old nature and put on the new nature. Because your question is then, when have I ever done enough to put off the old nature and put on the new nature? It's the same thing as um, faith. How do I know when I have enough faith to trust Christ? That was the struggle of the Wesleys. How do I know? And they were looking at their own faith as really their own work. And they were depressed because they never knew pre-conversion. How much was enough before it was the genuine article? And the Lord is teaching us and encouraging us and giving us assurance in Romans and in a section in Ephesians about this truth. Salvation is all of the Lord. All of it. He has put us into union with Christ. He is working out his new life in us, this new man where Christ rules and reigns on the throne of your heart. This is the kingdom now where he reigns. And it makes a difference, a stark difference, a difference that is as great as life from death. I can't think of a greater difference than that as the new pattern of our lives so that we know we're in him. And knowing that truth, and he puts emphasis on this, knowing this, knowing this, we're not ignorant of this, this is what fuels our love to Christ, our obedience to Christ. This is what fuels our willingness to to do these imperatives, these commands, right? Right? So that is a, that's a shift. That's a big paradigm shift, I think, of understanding the Scripture because we're talking about what the Lord has done for us and living in the light of that reality. Okay. And by the way, you get the same idea in Colossians 3. I'm not going to go through it with you this morning, but this idea of putting off and putting on, he talks about, just like is translated correctly in Ephesians 4, that You have put off, you have put on. But when he does give the command, and he does in Colossians 3, to put off and put on, he's not saying put off your old nature, your old man. He's not saying put on your new nature. He's saying put off the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh. Put on the fruit of the Spirit. See the difference? Because this is true of you already, your nature has changed. Now you can live this way. That's his emphasis. So, the old man is the old sin nature that we inherited from Adam, which is worn out. It's useless because it's been crucified with Christ. Crucified is just a metaphor for death. And then he says this back in Romans chapter 6 that the body of sin might be done away with. Um, The body of sin might be done away with. Next question What is this body of sin? Is this the same thing as the old man he just talked about in the, in the same verse? Or is he making a distinction because he's using a new term here? Well, <clears throat> there's been a lot of discussion, believe it or not, in the commentaries on the meaning of these two words. Let me tell you this. Here's what I understand from Scripture on this. When he uses this term body of sin, he is essentially using the same understanding as old man, but with this slight nuance or caveat. The old man is the old sin nature, right? The body of sin is the sphere, the the physical sphere, where that old nature used to reign. So you could think of the old man as the entity of a sinful nature. And that sin nature was at work inside of a sphere. And what's the sphere? Well, it's our bodies, The body of sin, he says. In fact, he uses the Greek word soma, which is the same word he's going to use many times in Romans 6 and even into 7 when he talks about the body, and it it refers to the physical body. It refers to the physical body. So, the old man is the old nature that we inherited from Adam, which used to reign in the sphere of your, what he calls, mortal body in verse 12. Look at Romans 6, 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Mortal meaning liable to death, corruption, body. The physical constitution of who you are. So, we have the old nature that used to reign in our physical bodies. That's a way of saying... All of us, all of our faculties, our minds, our affections, our wills, even our physical beings, the reason we age and get sick and die is because of sin, is it not? So all of us, all of our constitution was affected negatively, was corrupted by sin. Why? Because sin was reigning in the body of sin. So now Paul is going to give what I'm calling the purpose for our freedom. The purpose for our freedom, and it's twofold. Look what he says in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, here's purpose one. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we, number two, should no longer be slaves of sin. That we should no longer serve sin is another translation of that. So let's take these in turn. First is that the body of sin might be done away with. The King James says might be destroyed. It's not a really good translation because it doesn't convey the Truth of what he's trying to say there with accuracy. Um, Other translations, like the ESV, I believe, say "might be brought to nothing." The NAS and the LSB Legacy Standard do a a good job here. They say "might be made powerless." That gets closest to the idea. The word that he's using for "might be done away with" is the Greek word katargeo. It's used a lot of times in the New Testament, about twenty-seven times in total, and the meaning is to render inoperative or to deprive of force and power. That's important. To deprive of force and power. In other words, what was once very strong, the sphere where sin used to reign and which held us captive in our physical bodies, where we couldn't do anything but sin, that sphere, that body of sin, has been tremendously weakened by Christ. By his superabounding grace toward us. So that it no longer has the same force and power, that same authority, that same dominion that absolutely ruled over us like a tyrant on the throne. It does not mean to eradicate. And you kind of get that idea when you read in the King James that the body of sin might be destroyed He's not talking about that. If you take that understanding, people have run with that and they've said, well, he's talking about the end, our glorification, that the body of sin would ultimately be destroyed. And that's true. Ultimately, it's going to be destroyed, but that's not what he's saying here in Romans 6.6. He's saying that the body of sin might be deprived of its power now. See the difference? Now it's deprived of its power. Now it no longer reigns like it used to in you and in me. Paul actually uses what's called the aorist, which we know is the past tense. He uses the passive and he which means not active, not something he did but something that was done to him or to us, and he uses the subjunctive tense. So the translation that I have is that the body of sin might be done away with might be. And again, people get hung up on these words because words matter. And they form wrong doctrine because they're not looking at the context or the the particular use of the term in the Greek with the grammar. It's important to do that. When he says that the body of sin might be done away with or might be rendered inoperative, he's not saying, we were crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might possibly be deprived of its power at some point. He's not saying that. That would be one understanding of a subjunctive where you say, this truth is conditioned upon something that needs to be done. And that something is something I need to do, right? He's not saying that. The right understanding of this aorist passive subjunctive is that he's saying the body of sin, that it would be deprived of power and authority from the point in the past when we died with Christ. Not continuously over time in a progressive manner, but as a one-time act. It's done, So, again, the same pattern that we saw in Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what's true of you. Now live in the light of that truth. So, this is the first purpose of our crucifixion with Christ, our death with Him. It's that the body of sin would be deprived of its authority, rule, reign, and absolute power that it held over us previously. That's the first purpose. And I just want to give a couple of examples that were helpful to me. I often will look to the, um, or I'm starting more and more, to look to the Puritans um, to get a better understanding of some of these. You know, honestly, these are difficult truths, aren't they? These are, we're wrestling with these things. This is not like, you know, given. This, this is something that stretches the mind and, and is growing our faith as we are understanding these things. One of the Puritans, Thomas Brooks, listen to what he said with regard to um, what it means to be freed from sin. He says this, quote, Though by grace we are freed from the dominion of sin, and from the damnatory power of every sin, and from the love of all sin, yet grace does not free us from the seed of any one sin. End quote. That's helpful. That's helpful. It's helpful because he's saying it is possible for us to fall many times into the same sin as Christians. Why? Because that seed remains. That seed is in the seedbed of your heart, so to speak. And so it can sprout roots and begin to grow if we're not careful and watchful over it, right? So that's where the command comes in, like in Colossians 3.5, to mortify, to put to death. Your members which are on the earth. And then he lists all of them, right? This is what we are to do in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to keep those weeds down in the gardens of our hearts. You could think about it this way before the old man, the, the tyrant that was reigning over us, it's like we were totally enraptured and bound with thorny, thistly vines, couldn't go anywhere. We were totally held captive in its sway. But now we've been released from that. And our command, our imperative is by the power of the Spirit of God that we would tend the gardens of our hearts to keep these weeds from regrowing. And that's a constant practice. That's something that will never be completed in totality in this life. There are some who teach that it is possible. They're called perfectionists. They believe you can reach a state of sinless perfection in this life before the resurrection of the body at the last day. Brothers and sisters, the Scripture nowhere teaches that. It teaches progressive sanctification. We are getting more mastery over these sins as we grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we will not be freed from the presence of sin, which is really the issue, until the end, until we are raised bodily just like Christ was raised bodily. That's called our glorification. That will happen, but it doesn't happen in this life. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So, think now of the parable of the sower. You have the um, garden or the soil, which represents our hearts, and you have the seed, which represents the word of God that goes into the good soil of the hearts that we have been given, back to Ezekiel 36, right? And all. We are born again. We have a new planting that the Lord has himself planted because we are united and joined and grafted with Christ so that what now comes up is a growing together with Christ where he is bearing his own fruit through us. But there are still weeds that can sprout in this good heart, this uh, the, the, those seeds you could say are latent in the heart. They're still sprinkled, right? Just like when you plant a good garden, you have the thing that you intend to grow and then you have all the weeds that you didn't intend to grow. Those weeds are still in the heart and we must proactively root them out. So that was Thomas's, Thomas Brooks's view on sanctification and how we are free from the power of sin and how we deal with sin in the heart. Listen to John Flavel, another Puritan. He says this. He uses a little different example. He talks now about the heart being an instrument, like a musical instrument. And he says this, quote, For though grace has in great measure rectified the soul and given it a habitual heavenly temper, yet sin often actually discomposes it again so that even a gracious heart is like a musical instrument Which though it be ever so exactly tuned, a small matter places out of tune again. Yea, hang it aside but a little and it will need setting again before you can play another lesson on it. Isn't that interesting? We're like tuned instruments when we've been given new hearts and yet how easy it is for that instrument that is tuned to fall out of tune when we are neglectful of our duties, to tend the gardens of our hearts. So the first purpose again of our freedom from sin is that we, that the body of sin would be deprived of its rule and reign in us now. The second purpose is that he says we should no longer be slaves of sin. We should no longer be slaves of sin. And actually, he doesn't use the noun for slaves, but he uses the verb to serve as a slave would. Sin. That we should no longer serve sin like slaves is what he's saying. In other words, our old sin nature was crucified with Christ that the sin nature might be deprived of its power that we should no longer serve sin like we did when we were slaves to sin. Um, He's not saying that we should no longer be slaves at some point in the future, one day. One day when we're glorified, we're no longer going to be slaves. He's not saying that. He's saying now you're not slaves anymore. You've been set free. Let me just give you one more example here that was helpful for me in thinking about sorting this, you know, all, all of this language with the old man and the body of sin and how they work together. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is an example from redemptive history. Um, all of redemptive history has a physical component. These things actually happened. Right? God led a people out of Egypt and he brought them through the Red Sea with mighty power and he Brought them through the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin and eventually brings them across the Jordan into the promised land. But all of that redemptive history that actually happened has a spiritual significance as well for us today. And that's really what I would like to show you um, as we look at Deuteronomy 7. Look at Deuteronomy 7 starting in verse 16. Actually starting in verse, uh, yeah, verse 16. The Lord is giving instruction to his people when they are about to enter the promised land. And here's what he says, that these are his commands to them. Deuteronomy 7:16. Also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, But you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed And he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Now, the reason I wanted us to look at this account together is because there is a wonderful spiritual truth lesson that is taught us in this true example from redemptive history. And it's this. The Lord is helping us, I think, to understand the difference between the old man, that old sin nature, and the body of sin that has been deprived of its strength. And if you think about it in these terms, it it may make sense. We, like Israel, before we were saved, were all slaves in Egypt, right? Right? We were under the rule, the reign, the authority of the Pharaoh. He was the monarch who ruled and reigned over us, and we were in a condition of absolute slavery. We had no ability to leave that condition until Moses and the greater Moses, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to lead us out of spiritual Egypt, bondage. Having come out from that spiritual bondage, That is now a picture of the old man. The old man has been crucified. He's been, in fact, buried. Pharaoh, was he not buried in the Red Sea by the Lord himself when he was pursuing the army of Israel? He was buried. So that rule and that reign, that tyranny from Pharaoh and Egypt upon the people of God is now ended. I think that's exactly what he's saying for us. With regard to the old man, the old man no longer rules and reigns anymore in your hearts. Why? Because you now have a new heart. You have been brought into a new land, brother and sister. What is that land? It's the land where Jesus Christ rules and reigns. This is just another way of saying you've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son. You've been translated from Egypt spiritually into Canaan, the promised land, spiritually. That is this new heart that he himself has given us so that we now. Now, this is where this gets interesting with regard to the body of sin, that this body of sin would be rendered inoperative. What is that? Well, what happened when Israel came into the promised land of Canaan? Did God expel all the enemies before them right away? Or did he leave some of those enemies seated in that land so that as Israel came through, they were able to defeat them through obedience to the Lord? That's exactly what he's describing here. And he's saying, you will destroy these peoples, these foreign peoples who worship other gods. You will not show them any mercy. And so it is to be with us, brothers and sisters, with regard to our own sin, the sin in our hearts. We are to treat it without mercy. We are to mortify, as Colossians 3 says. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Just like Israel was to drive them out. And when we are overwhelmed and when we're feeling afraid about these enemies, Lord, I have so many enemies that are still within me. I have so many sins that are still besetting sins that I deal with all the time. His answer is this. You will not be afraid of them, but you will remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt you will remember the great redemption that he brought you through by delivering you from Egypt spiritually through the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. You remember that. Remember that mighty act of redemption, of salvation that only he could accomplish. And that is now your strength as you go into the land and you fight these, as you root out these little seeds, these weeds of sin in your heart. You will not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. He is greater than all our sin. His grace is superabounding. He can send a, a lowly hornet into the land and cause all of your enemies to flee if he wants. This is God. Your enemies are no problem for him. Do you trust him in that? Do you trust him this morning in that as you think about eradicating sin from your heart? He will give you that ability to root out a little at a time. He says, I will not utterly destroy all these nations. This is a picture of progressive sanctification. The Lord your God will drive out those nations, verse 22, before you little by little. That's exactly how it is for us. Little by little, he is sanctifying us progressively over time until the land one day will be totally free of enemies, of sin. Sin's power over us, brothers and sisters, is broken. We've been told what's true of us. Christ has put us into union with himself so that we might walk in newness of life. He's given us his spirit to enable us to do that with power. It doesn't mean that we will not deal with sin anymore. We still do sin. But the pattern of sin, the habitual lifestyle that we were given to before, when old man sin was reigning, that's been broken. That's gone. You now have a new pattern of life of righteousness, holiness, and truth, and love for Christ, and hatred of your own sin, and continual repentance. No true believer can say that he must sin. No true believer can just say, I can't deal with that sin. It's got a grip on me, and I can never get out from under it. I've been dealing with it for too long. You may not say that. You cannot say that. If you are born again, if you are truly in Christ, he gives that authority because he is now ruling and reigning on the throne of your heart. So let us be good gardeners, so to speak, this week as we seek the Lord in his word, as we seek to be filled with the Spirit of God by dwelling on his mind and in prayer and in fellowship with each other. Let us be good musicians, those who are constantly tuning our instruments to the Lord so that we play a sweet melody for him. And let's remember this framework of Deuteronomy chapter 7 of progressive sanctification with the Lord going before us and commanding us to utterly destroy, root out all that sin as we find it, as it crops up, knowing that he can more than accomplish all of that in our behalf. For he who died has been freed from sin. Freed. That's the title of the message this morning. And he, interestingly, in verse 7, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but he, he uses the word justification here. He says, you've been justified from sin, which is interesting because he spent chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans talking a lot about justification. So in this context, he's not talking about our justification in terms of the penalty being paid for our sin. We already learned that in chapters 3 through 5. Here he is talking about being justified from the power of sin. It no longer rules and reigns over you. And one day, praise the Lord, He's going to deliver us from the presence of sin. That's our glorification. That's all coming. Hmm. The promise of freedom, being united with Him, doesn't just make it possible we walk in newness of life, but it actually guarantees it. The purpose of freedom, twofold, that the body of sin would be deprived of reigning power now in your heart that we no longer have to serve sin. You can say no as you say yes to Christ in obedience to him. And thirdly, the proclamation of freedom. We have been declared free by God. This is what is true of us. Now, live in the light of that truth and enjoy your freedom from sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which is sharper than a two-edged sword, it's powerful, it's quick, it knows how to bring to life as it cuts out the cancer of our sin from within us, from within our old hearts, and it knows how to um, judge and condemn those who are unwilling to repent and turn to Jesus for life. Father, you are the one to be feared above all. Help us because we do fear men at times and we do fear our circumstances. We do get overwhelmed with the sin that is still in our lives. Father, help us to look to you in faith, trusting you that you can work in us to root all these things out continuously as a practice and that we would enjoy more and more freedom in Christ because surely, Lord, this is your purpose in saving us, that we would resemble ourselves less and resemble your Son more. Thank you, Father, for the work of grace you're doing in each one of our hearts. May it grow this week ever more, And may you be sweeter to us, Lord, as we taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen.